0: Hello. Happy Monday, January 4th, 2021. It's me again, your daily voice of information, Sean. Once again, welcome to this day in Wikipedia. Just wanted to start off the show by saying happy World Braille Day to all of our listeners. So, take time and celebrate World Braille Day. This day, January 4th, is like one of my favorite days of the year. Um, I didn't specifically highlight the reasons that I love this day so much in this episode I will touch on it briefly but the main reason that I love this day so much is because on January 4th 2019 my son Edward was born um I don't have enough information about Edward yet to do a uh, full length podcast about him but suffice to say he's wicked cute very very funny and the love of my life and i love the kid so much i can't believe he's two my wife and i have spent all day yesterday talking about how oh my gosh do you remember two years ago we were in the hospital two years ago we were in the hospital two years ago we were in the hospital and man it is amazing just watching that kid and all the fun stuff that he knows how to do that being said let's get on with the podcast so, as always, we are going to start with a birth. On this day, January 4th, 1957, Patricia Lee Ramey was born. Uh, now, her name is not immediately recognizable. However, she is better known by her stage name, Patty Loveless. Uh, she was born in Kentucky. She had kind of a normal childhood growing up, Um In 1969, when Patty was 12, her older sister Dottie and their brother Rogers started touring around Kentucky, eastern Kentucky, as the Swingin' Rainies. They were a pretty decent little country duo, played at a lot of bars, and became fairly well-known on the eastern parts of Kentucky. After getting married in 1969, Dottie decided to quit the group, and Patty took her place. Patty was initially like pretty scared of performing in front of crowds, but she really, really loved the applause that she got. Her first gig she earned five dollars, which pretty crazy in nineteen seventy one Patty and Roger went to Nashville where they were introduced to Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton saw promise in Patty, but really she really wanted Patty to go back and finish school so. Patty listened to Dolly, and she went back and she finished school. She would come up to Nashville and perform on the weekends with Dolly Parton. After graduating high school in 1975, Patty became the full-time lead singer in the Wilborn Brothers Band, which was a group that had taken interest in Patty after hearing her sing in Nashville. Shortly after graduating from high school, she also married her husband, Terry Lovelace, which is where her stage name, Patty Lovelace, would come from. The two performed all over North Carolina for the next six years. In 1985, she returned to Nashville, and her and her husband had an amical divorce in 1986. She recorded a five-song solo demo, and her brother Roger sent it to, like, every nashville record record label and finally she got her first contract signing with mca records however her contract with mca was not for full-length albums it was solely for singles her first two singles that she released didn't really light the world on fire but they did well enough that she was able to get a long-term recording contract through mca records Her second single, which was called I Did, saw really heavy radio rotation to the point where MCA Records told her that they were having to pull it just so that they could give other artists equal time. But because they were pulling it, that is what helped Patty get her full-time record contract. She released her first two albums on MCA Records in January 1987 and January 1988, respectively. Neither album was a huge success, and it wasn't until later in 1988 in October when she released Honky Tonk Angel that her career took off. Honky Tonk Angel reached number seven on the U.S. country album chart, and the album has since gone platinum. Platinum means it had over a million in sales. Since the release of Honky Tonk Angel, she's had three more platinum albums, which were Only What I Feel, which was released in 1993. When Angels Fly, which was released in 1994, and The Trouble with the Truth, which was released in 1996. She has also had four albums that have gone gold, which means they've had over 500,000 in sales, which were One Down the Line in 1990, Long Stretch of Lonesome in 1997, Greatest Hits album in 1993, and her classics album in 1999. Patty has been retired as a full time performer since 2008, but she still occasionally performs with the Grand Old Opry, which she's been a member of since 1998. She's surprisingly has only won two Grammys one for her song Same Old Train in 1998, and she won a Grammy in 2011 for, her, for Best Bluegrass Album with her album Mountain Soul 2. I found Patty's life interesting, and you know, she worked really hard. To get where she where she did and she's had a lot of success in her life now we're gonna talk about somebody who died today on january 4th 1999 actor iron eyes cody died iron eyes cody is an interesting character so i first heard about him through the podcast the dollop they did a very very in-depth episode about iron eyes cody it's episode 241 which is called the two indigenous actors if you are interested in learning more about Iron Eyes, I highly recommend listening to this episode of The Dollop. It's, a, in general, a fantastic podcast. I will will warn you, there is a lot of swearing in it, so it is not, <laughs> not a family-friendly podcast like this. Um, Iron Eyes Cody. So, very interesting guy. He was an Italian-American actor who was best known for his portrayal of numerous native american roles in hollywood westerns his filmography is absurd he acted in over 200 films and 100 tv shows like his career was insane the thing was was that he was not native american despite what he said despite how he portrayed himself he wasn't And he often took roles from actual, legit Native American actors, which is what that podcast, The Dollop, focuses on, is um, his sort of rivalry with another Native American actor. It's not necessarily his movie roles that Iron Eyes is best known for, uh, for kids that are, for people who are my age, I'm 39. What he is most remembered for, for us, is his PSA ad from... The Keep America Beautiful PSA. He's the Crying Indian. Yeah, that's what he's really well known for. Is turning towards the camera. He sees litter like floating in a river or something like that. Turns his head to the camera and there's this single tear just rolling down Iron Eyes' face. Iron Eyes acted with everybody who was anybody in the Hollywood Western market. He was in movies with Roy Rogers. Just everybody he was very very well known actor he almost always stayed in character he wore stereotypical native american attire around everywhere he refuted any sort of suggestions that he wasn't native american he flat out denied being italian it's it's very funny again the the dollop episode really goes into his life a lot more in depth than than i will The tribes that he allegedly belonged to always were changing. He just lived this life and he did not really care what people thought about him. He was a Native American and darn what anybody else thought. He finally died in 1999 at the age of 94. His final comment that he wrote was, Make me ready to stand before you with clean and straight eyes. When life fades as the fading sunset, may our spirits stand before you without shame. Iron Eyes has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and like I said, he acted in a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows. The dude had a very, very, very prolific career. Finally, on this day in 1853, Solomon Northrup regained his freedom from slavery and would go on to write the book 12 Years a Slave. Solomon was born on July 10th, and the year of his birth is not known. is either 1807 or 1808. His father was a freed slave, and his mother was a freed woman of color. In 1828, when Solomon was in his early 20s, he got married to his wife, Ann Hampton. They had three kids together, Elizabeth, Margaret, and Alonzo. Solomon was a very talented violinist, and his family moved to Saratoga Springs, New York in 1834. He worked primarily playing violin in various hotels, but it was a hard life, and it was really hard to make ends meet. In 1941, when Solomon was 32, he met two men who offered him gigs in New York. Solomon didn't tell his wife about these gigs because he didn't expect to be gone long. While in New York, the two men convinced him to go to Washington, D.C., where slavery was legal. They allowed Solomon to get his free papers, which proved he was a free man. At some point during the trip to Washington, D.C., Solomon was drugged and sold to a slave trader for $650 with the claim that Solomon was a fugitive slave. During the trip to Louisiana, he was beaten Renamed Platt and told him never to talk about his status as a free man. He spent the next 12 years of his life being beaten and tortured under slavery. Um, he lived at several different plantations in his life. And finally, in 1852, a carpenter named Samuel Bass helped Solomon escape after hearing his story. Samuel Bass was a Canadian abolitionist and was the first person that Solomon had ever told the true story of his life about. After escaping the plantation, the next huge hurdle for Solomon was proving that he actually was a free man and was not a slave. Um, At this point in time, the Fugitive Slave Act was going on, which meant that even if a slave escaped to the north, they could be brought back to the south and... Given back to their plantation owners. It took months and months for Solomon to prove who he was, and that he was not a slave. And finally, on January fourth, eighteen fifty-three, Solomon Northrup regained his freedom. Um, as I said at the top, he would go on to write the book Twelve Years a Slave, and he spent the rest of his life as an abolitionist. So, yeah, I thought. Solomon's story, I've not seen the movie 12 Years a Slave or read the book, but I've heard fantastic things about them. Um, I found his life just insanely fascinating. Like, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a 32-year-old man having grown up as a free man your whole life and then all of a sudden in one day your whole life is turned upside down and for the next 12 years of your life, so he's basically 44 when he got out It's insane. I just wanted to mention this one just because I think it's cool. But on January 4th, 1992, the first ever Tokyo Dome event from New Japan Pro Wrestling happened. It was called Super Warriors in Tokyo Dome. This was the first January 4th show. (laughs) I just wanted to kind of mention this last one really quick. It's really stupid. I promise that I'm not going to go too in-depth into it but I just thought it was something that was kind of interesting. On January 4th, 1992, Super Warriors in Tokyo Dome occurred. This was the first January 4th Tokyo Dome show for New Japan Pro Wrestling. This show would end up becoming a yearly tradition for New Japan Pro Wrestling. And in 2007, it officially was renamed and the name was changed to Wrestle Kingdom. Wrestle Kingdom has become one of the marquee wrestling events of the year. And I'm so excited to watch it again this year. And with that, I am out of here, everybody. I hope you have a fantastic day. And I will see you again on Tuesday, January 5th. Bye.